Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Grateful to Peter for leading us and uh, for his welcome. Uh, I'd love to uh, add my own welcome to you and uh, say, uh, as Peter said, you're very, very welcome, especially uh, the many people that are in this building for the very first time. It's great to have you with us. Now, let me encourage you to, if you can, uh, grab hold of a Bible that should be uh, tucked inside uh, the the, the seat in front of you and turn with me to Romans chapter 1, page 1128 is the page number. Uh, We began two weeks ago looking through uh, the book of Romans, one of 66 books in the Bible, um, a a, a book that's written by the Apostle Paul. And um, if you're new here, then uh, I need to tell you that we believe uh, that uh, the Bible is the way that God speaks to us today. And uh, so I will read it and then I'll try to explain it to you. Uh, But I'd love you to keep it open uh, so that you can check out whether what I'm saying is what the Bible says Uh, And then if it isn't, you can ignore it. And if it is, well, it's between you and God uh, to deal with what he says to us tonight. Romans chapter 1, beginning to read from verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be made known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in these sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts Even their women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lusts for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, with that uh, Bible reading open in front of me, uh, in front of us, uh, let me pray now that God would indeed speak to us through it. Our Father, we pray as we now look at your word, the Bible that you would be very kind and gracious to us and speak to us, help us to understand 
your word to us. And may it not stay as something in our minds, but be wonderfully life-transforming for your praise and glory. Amen. A friend of mine studied a PhD in New Testament at King's College London. In, I think it was his second year, his tutor said to him, I'm yet to meet any Christian who really believes in the wrath of God. My friend said, I find that really hard to believe. I know loads of Christians who believe in God's wrath. I do myself, said my friend. And his lecturer said, oh no, don't get me wrong. I've met many Christians who tell me that they believe in the wrath of God, but none who really believe it. If they did, they would feel compelled to tell everyone they met of the danger that they were in. Challenging comment. I guess that's why last week, uh, and for those of you who weren't here last week, I'll try and bring us up to speed, but I guess that's why last week we were so struck by the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 14. Do you remember Paul wrote chapter 1 verse 14, I am bound, the word is obligated, I feel an obligation to, do you see verse 14, Greeks and barbarians, to wise and foolish. He is saying here, I feel compelled to preach the gospel to everyone I meet. And in chapter 1, verse 16, last week, we saw why. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Do you see it there? As we saw last week, the gospel is for salvation. And right at the beginning of our section this evening from verse 18, we are immediately confronted with what we need to be saved from. And it's there in verse 18, the wrath of God God's wrath is his settled, controlled, righteous and personal hostility to evil. God hates evil for God is a righteous God. We saw that as well in verse 17. That's how all of this runs on. The gospel is about God's righteousness. He is a God who does the right thing. And God's wrath flows from his righteousness. He cannot turn a blind eye to evil and wickedness, and I, for one, wouldn't follow a God who did. Uh, This week marked the anniversary of the murder of two unarmed women police officers in a gun and grenade attack in Greater Manchester. Do you remember it a year ago? It rocked the nation. Also in the news this week, we've been reminded of the IRA bomb that killed two boys in Warrington in 1993. And then, of course, in the news, and it was reflected in in Sean's prayers this week, we've heard of the work of the UN trying to establish who used chemical weapons in Syria. The God of the Bible is angry when these things happen. And I wouldn't follow a God who wasn't. I wouldn't follow a God who turned a blind eye to wickedness and said it doesn't matter, because it does matter. And because he is righteous, as we saw last week in verse 17... Because the one true God is righteous, he doesn't turn a blind eye to evil and wickedness. So verse 16, in the gospel, is the power of God to save us. And what do we need saving from, verse 18, is the wrath of God. Now isn't that very striking? Our biggest problem, the biggest problem we have in the world is God. We need to be saved from God, from the wrath of God. Not that we see that these days. You know, years ago, there was, certainly in Britain, a genuine fear of God, but not now. I was in the front seat of a limousine following a hearse on the way to a crematorium. 
it happens reasonably often in the job that I do. And uh, I asked the funeral director who was driving the car, how do you cope with dealing with death all day long? I forget exactly what he said now, but I do remember how the conversation went on from there. And I remember asking him, do you ever think about your own death? And he said to me, no, I'm not scared of dying. He'd seen it so often, it just didn't scare him. And I said to him, well, dying may not be a problem, but what about what's beyond? And he said, no, I'm not scared of that either. And I said, well, what, what do you think is beyond? Do you think you'll meet God or do you think it's just nothing? And he said, well, to be honest, I'm not sure. It's not something I've really settled on in my own mind. And I said, are you not scared of meeting God if he is there? He said, no, why should I be? Well, well, look, here is why we should be scared. The wrath of God. This whole section from chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20, is a carefully constructed argument to show us that we are all sinful. None of us are good, and therefore we should all feel terrified of meeting God one day, because on our own, left to ourselves, we will face God and God's wrath. Now, now please just let me stop here for a moment and encourage those of us who've been around Christian things for a while just to sharpen our thinking at this point. In Christian circles, we often talk about being saved from sin. Uh, But that's actually shorthand, and it's not really always very helpful to, to use that phrase. It's not sin we need to be saved from. Our problem is the effect that our sin has on a righteous God. Our sin makes him angry. And so what we need to be saved from is not our sin, but the effect of our sin. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. And look, this is not just semantics here. If all we say is that we need to be saved from sin, then we can easily think we don't need God to sort out our problem. As a friend of mine put it to me, sin's not so bad, I live with it all the time. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm quite happy. Yes, sometimes my sin ruins other people's lives, but I've always been able to patch it up so far. Do you see, if we say we need to be saved from sin, we could easily think that our predicament is not such a problem after all. But look, sin is not just an inconvenience or an embarrassment. Our biggest problem with sin is not just that it's socially unacceptable or that it makes society less stable and less enjoyable. No, sin is a problem because it provokes God's wrath. And that's a good thing because God is a righteous God and he should be angry at evil. And so the gospel is about saving us from the wrath of God. Or may I put it this way, the gospel is about how God saves us from God. So chapter 2 verse 5 speaks of the day of wrath. In chapter 2 verse 5 it is speaking of a a future day of judgment. Here in chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 we hear about a present revealing of God's wrath now. And as we see God's wrath, the wrath of God being revealed now, it tells us there is going to be a final day of God's wrath in the future. That's the connection we need to keep in our minds tonight. What provokes God's wrath is there in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. See those words are wickedness, but particularly the word godlessness. Living without God, being Godless. Uh, we've we've sung it in the first two uh, songs, uh, especially. God is the Creator of all things. He made you and me. We are entirely dependent upon Him for our life and every breath we take. And 
And yet we want to live without him. We, we, we write him out of the script. It's what Paul says in verse 18. In our wickedness, we suppress the truth about God. And that, of course, is the greatest wickedness in the universe, to write God out of the equation. Knowing that God does exist, but not acknowledging God as God. And everyone does know that God exists, says Paul here, verse 19. Since what may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. No excuse. No excuse for anyone who says that God doesn't exist. So to the atheist who says there's no evidence, this verse says, yes, there is. There is evidence. Uh, There's more than this evidence, actually, for the existence of God, but we'll just stay here for the moment. God has revealed himself in creation, but we don't want to accept the evidence that is before our eyes. I forget who it was now, but I remember reading of a media personality who's an atheist, and I've been searching the internet all week trying to find out who it was. I just can't remember, I'm sorry. But he was asked, what will you do if when you die, you meet God, and he asks you, why didn't you follow him? And the celebrity answered, I'll ask him why he didn't make himself more obvious. Now, here's why that won't wash. There's enough evidence in the creation for everyone to know that God exists, verse 20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And that's a great phrase, isn't it? The invisible God has been clearly seen. But verse 18, we suppress the truth about God. Now, if you're here this evening and wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, thank you very much for coming. It's great you've come here this evening. Uh, Please know we are open to discuss and debate the rational evidence for why we are Christians. Please ask us questions. Come back again. Uh, Ask me questions tonight. Indeed, let me encourage you to come on this course that... um, Peter mentioned earlier the reason for God. Pick up one of these and come. It's exactly about us having good, honest, rational debate. The fact you're here this evening suggests to me that you are reasonable and open, an open person, and I would love to talk to you after the service about this if you would like to do that. But for now, may I invite you into a different way of thinking about the world and about your own conclusions so far? Would you tonight consider that there's something much greater going on than just that you can't see the evidence for God? May I ask you, is it possible that we all suppress the truth about God and that's why we can't see what is plainly before our eyes? Indeed, can you think of a reason why we might not want there to be a God and that might be why we suppress the truth? Well, verses 19 and 20 tell us that in creation, God has clearly revealed the truth about himself, which goes a long way to answering a very important question that I've been asked many times, and I guess some of you have been asked it as well. What about those who've never heard? I've sat up in the wee small hours and discussed that question with people. Here's the beginning of an answer. While not everyone has heard the gospel, in creation, everyone has had a revelation of God, enough that they can know the one true God. But... Everyone chooses to suppress that revelation. So end of verse 20, everyone is without excuse. No one will be able to say on judgment day, why didn't you make your existence clear to me? All of us suppress the truth about God. 
And if that isn't bad enough, we, we don't just deny the existence of God, but we exchange the truth about God for a lie. Verse 21, although they knew God, that is in creation, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and here it is, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Do you see there? We make an exchange. That's the word in verse 23. It comes again in verse 25. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. More literally there in verse 25, we exchange the truth of God for the lie. The lie of idolatry. We worship and live for things uh, that are created rather than worshipping living for the creator. And we are as idolatrous today as the ancients who built temples and statues to other gods. Today, in 21st century Britain, we believe that other things other than God will give us what only God can give us. That's idolatry. Whether it's other religions or philosophical ideas about God, you know, all the isms we create, humanism, Marxism, communism, consumerism, they're all an attempt to give us the answer to life. And we turn to those other things believing that they'll give us what we need. Romans chapter 1 verse 25, we worship and serve created things, things we've made up rather than worshipping and serving the creator, the one true God. Now that is the ultimate sin and of course it is breaking the first commandment. We turn from the one true God and turn to other gods. It's a terrible exchange. It is the root of all sin and it's that that provokes God's wrath. And therefore, in judgment, we read here, God gives us over. That's the expression that comes three times in this passage. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over. Verse 28, therefore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over. This, for me, is the most frightening most frightening aspect of this passage the wrath of God that is being revealed now from heaven is God giving us over handing us over to our own ways it is a terrifying thought it's like the teenager who comes home and says to mum and dad I never want to see you again and the worst judgment on that child is for mum and dad to say okay you never will see me again God giving us over we say to God we don't want you And when he gives us over, it's like a juggernaut out of control, heading down a steep hill. Giving us over is like God taking his foot off the brake. It's as if he says, you don't want me in the driving seat? Okay. And as soon as he gets out of the driving seat and takes his foot off the brake, there is only one outcome. When God gives us up, we are left to our own devices and it is disastrous and terrifying. Uh, Anne Graham Lotz, the the daughter of Billy Graham, expressed something of this after the tragedy of 9-11. On CBS's The Early Show, the morning after the 9-11 attacks, uh, the show's host, Jane Clayson, asked Anne Graham Lotz this question. I've heard people say, those who are religious and those who are not, if God is good, how could God let this happen, 9-11? To that you say? And Anne Graham Lotz replied like this. I say God is also angry when he sees something like this. 
I would say also for several years now, Americans, in a sense, have shaken their fists at God and said, God, we want you out of our schools, our government, our business. We want you out of our marketplace. And God, who is a gentleman, has just quietly backed out of our national and political and public life. Removing his hand of blessing and protection. We need to turn to God first of all and say, God, we're sorry we treated you this way and we invite you to come into our national life. We put our trust in you. We have our trust in God on our coins. We need to practice it, she said. It's a terrifying thing when God gives us over, when he takes his hand of restraint off and leaves us to it. But that's exactly what we read here. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones in the same way that men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to what ought to not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They're gossips and so on. And the list that follows is ugly. Verse 29, we are filled with every kind of wickedness. As God says, as we say to God, I don't want you. And he says, okay, I'll withdraw. This is what we're left with. Do you see, we are as we are. We live the way we live. Society is as it is because we've suppressed the truth about God. We've exchanged the truth about God for the lie of idolatry. And so God has given us over to our sinful desires and then we live rampant sinful lives. And that is that pattern is repeated here in this passage again and again. I'm going to stay on this point for a moment and you'll see why in a moment, so stay with me. There is a pattern here in the passage that we're meant to see and each time it begins with our thinking. Let me just do this three times for you just to show you where I'm going and then you hopefully will understand why I'm doing this. Verse 21, it begins with our thinking but it's the same pattern. Verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks, but their thinking became futile. Verse 25, uh, sorry, verse uh, 23, and they exchanged the glory of God for the uh, glory of the immortal God for images. So our thinking goes wrong. We make this exchange. Then verse 24, God gave them over. And as we've seen, he gives us over to sinful behavior. Same pattern coming again. Verse 25 starts with wrong thinking. Because of this, God gave them over. Sorry, verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shamefulness. You see again, it starts in our thinking. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Then comes the exchange. Then God gives us over. And then comes sinful behaviour. The same in verse 28. Starts in our thinking. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over. And then comes the sinful behaviour. Do you see the pattern? It comes again and again. It all begins with the way we think. And if you look back through the passage, and I won't do it now, all the language in this passage is, is, is a language of thinking. It's about truth and understanding and darkened thinking. They did not think. Now, the reason I've done all that is turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and you'll see where all this is heading. Uh, page 1139.
Romans chapter 12, page 1139, verses 1 and 2. And it's verse 2 is the key verse, but I'll read from verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Here, listen, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. You see, what's the pattern of this world? Wrong thinking means that we exchange God for idols. Therefore, God gives us over and that results in sinful lives. That's the pattern. And because it all begins with wrong thinking, chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To stop conforming to the pattern of this world, that pattern of rejecting God and exchanging God for a lie, being given over by God, being living a more sinful life, to stop that pattern, to start living a godly life, I must first get my thinking right. That's what he says in verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why we need to think hard when we come to church. We are rational beings. Christianity is rational. It is not only about the mind, but it begins here. Again, for those who wouldn't call themselves followers of Jesus, I hope this is an encouragement for you to come back. We're thinking about this. Indeed, the first thing God wants to do is to get our thinking straight. We haven't left our minds somewhere else when we come into church, or at least we shouldn't have done. But of course, we're not to leave it here in our minds. Chapter 12, verse 2, we renew our minds so that our lives are transformed. Right thinking leads to right living. Just as wrong thinking, chapter 1, leads to sinful living. Well, turn back with me then to Romans uh, 1 as we begin to draw some threads together. One other big thing I want to show you, and then we'll bring it all together. In Romans chapter one, see the kind of living that God gives us over to. And as we do, note the punishment fits the crime. We see that in that phrase at the end of verse 27. We receive the due penalty. The punishment fits the crime. What is the crime, if you remember? The crime is to suppress the truth about God, to say to God, I don't want you. And then to exchange a relationship with the one true God for other gods. The crime then, at its heart, is to break off relationship with God. And so God gives us over. We say we don't want God and he says, okay, you won't have me in your life. The crime is relational. I don't want what is natural, a relationship with the God I was created for, And so the punishment is scrambled relationships. That's why the first thing we read about is mankind turning to, as is written here, unnatural relationships, verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Now, please understand why scrambled sexual relationships are the first thing that are listed here. All the way through the Bible, marriage and sex in marriage is meant to reflect the great relationship between Christ and his people. And so when we push God out, that is reflected in our marriages and in sex. And so is it any wonder that as this nation has become less and less interested in knowing Jesus Christ in these last years, and those of you who are older will be able to say that has definitely happened in the last 30, 40, 50 years... As this nation has become much less interested in knowing anything about Jesus Christ, 
God has given us over to be less and less faithful in marriage and sex and more and more accepting of unnatural, scrambled sexual relationships. That's why this is going on. So topsy-turvy has it become that even the government has undermined Christian marriage and supported what is unnatural. Do you see, the punishment fits the crime. The crime is relational, and so we are given over to things that are not natural and that are scrambled in their relationships. And we see exactly the same in verses 29 to 31. As I read this, note that in this list, it is all, all, everything in this list ruins relationships. Verse 29, they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You know, any one of those, pick one, anyone out and say, what impact does that have on my relationship, both with God and with others? And everyone, you'll come to the same point, it ruins relationships. This is the result of God giving us over. The punishment fits the crime. I've pushed him out. The great relationship I should have, I said, I don't want you. And as he gives us over, all relationships are ruined. So we see a society full of these things. And when I look at Britain, that is what I see. And as we see a society full of these things, we are looking at a society under God's wrath. And therefore, chapter 2, verse 5, storing up wrath for the day of God's wrath. Because this is just a little picture of something that is much worse to come. And if we have an ounce of compassion in us, we must therefore do everything we can to tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is the only antidote to the problem. See, as we close, do you see the problem is theological? Our greatest problem is the problem between us and God. The greatest problem we have is not global warming or global poverty or global terrorism, and I'm not undermining those. I'm not saying they're not important. But our greatest problem is the wrath of God. And therefore, only the gospel, only the theological antibiotic will solve the problem. If you throw a legislative antibiotic at the problem and tell people to behave more, it won't work. Give society an economic antibiotic and it won't make it better. Try to solve the problem with education or philosophy or medicine or technology and it will not work. You lot know this better than I do. You've got to match the infection with the antibiotic. Only the theological antibiotic will deal with the problem. The problem is theological and so only the gospel will mend us. Which is why chapter 1 verse 16, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the gospel, in the gospel, that we find the power of God for salvation. And that's what we need, to be saved from the wrath of God. Now if we believed that, really believed it, if we really believed in the wrath of God, we'd want to tell everyone we meet about the gospel. And that's why Paul is writing this, as we've seen in these last couple of weeks. Again, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, there's a little video, a little uh, 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 clip on, uh, on our website, and you can see an introduction to this book, and you'll see why I'm going to make the conclusions I'm going to make now. Remember, Paul is writing this to encourage the church in Rome to want to be supporting his missionary activity to Spain. He wants them to give money, 
He wants them to go with him to Spain if they can. He wants them to pray. Paul wants us to realise there is no greater need in the world than for men and women to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we get this, any decent Christian man or woman will want to do all they can to be sure that as many people as possible hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so we will give our money and be prepared to go on church plants and missions. And we will invite our friends to hear the gospel next week, uh, to come and hear uh, what, what we're going to be thinking about next week. And we will take every opportunity to be involved in the passion for life that's going to happen all this year. We will take every opportunity to get down on our knees in prayer and to do all we can to ensure that as many people as possible hear the gospel. Because there is no other solution, there is no other way, and there is no more important task in the entire universe. And we'll, if we're not convinced of it now, we will be next week. We should spend some time in prayer, and particularly in confession, and I'll hand over to Peter who will help us to do that.